Wrestling fans, welcome to the April 2022 episode of the Charting the Territories podcast. My name is Al Getz, and with me along for this journey, as always, is my co-host, John Boucher. John, how is your April going? April, April, April's going pretty well. Happy, happy April. Happy, happy WrestleMania month. Uh, WrestleMania happy... month, Easter, Passover. Uh, we're actually recording this earlier than our normal schedule. So we're recording this on Easter Sunday. So, of course, mm. this doesn't affect anyone who listens to this because Easter will be long gone by then. But, John, I hope you are having a good holiday, whichever of oh, the yeah. two holidays you are celebrating. Easter with a lot of candy. So if I'm a lot, I'm, if I'm very talkative, more talkative than usual. Are you hopped up on the sugar? Lots of sugar, baby. Right. I, I every year I hide plastic eggs all over the apartment for Sarah to wake up for and find. And I ate a lot of that candy uh, both last night, this morning, and this afternoon. So. I may be in a diabetic coma by the time we finish this episode. Okay. So. so is it a deal where the one she doesn't find you get to keep? That should be the rule. Oh, no. I just, that's a, that's a good rule. Perhaps yeah. next year. Next year. Okay. But this month on our podcast, we're going to be looking at the second quarter of 1966 in Leroy McGurk's Oklahoma slash Louisiana territory. Now, in the first quarter, the Assassins had a big feud with the Kentuckians and Danny Hodge was injured in a car accident. In the second quarter, Hodge is back. The Assassins are still here. A tournament, well, actually, tournaments, are held to crown new United States Tag Team Champions, and several newcomers debut. Now, a couple of months ago on this podcast, we talked about Dan Crawford, who invented the ladder match in 1971 in Stampede. His opponent in those early ladder matches, Tor Kamada is one of those newcomers in 1966, as is a wrestler we've seen here when talking about 1973 and 1974, and that is Stan Crusher Kowalski. In addition, another wrestler debuts with a main event level push, and honestly, very little is known about this man other than what we can gather from various press clippings around the time. But John and I have tried for the last several weeks to dig a little deeper and see if we can find out just who the fuck is Battleship Johnson. All that and much more, including This Month I Learned, a recap of the latest Stats 101 podcast. And as always, we kick things off with Shit John Bought Me Off eBay. Oh, hell yeah. So, John, this month I received one item. Fan, listeners, you'll recall, John is authorized to spend approximately $50 of my money every month buying me shit off eBay, usually wrestling-related, but not necessarily uh, limited to that. And this month, I received a large package in the mail. Usually, these are of the smaller size. They're pictures or little trinkets and whatnot. But this, uh, the package was about the size of a Trivial Pursuit board game package. And and the reason I say it was that size is because what was inside was indeed a very similar board game. But it's not Trivial Pursuit. It's Wrestling's Trivial Pursuit, as the item that John bought me off eBay is Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. Mm. So this was a 
It's a board game. It came out, I believe, in 1987. Its layout on the game board is very similar to that of Trivial Pursuit. There's a circular outside and then four paths leading into the center. And you roll a die and you advance a certain number of spots. And then you answer a trivia question. And if you get it right, you get to roll again. So on and so forth. Uh, but wedges, wedges. Uh, there are wedges uh, and they all look like they're part of the same set. Now, I don't know about you, John, but in my childhood, uh, we had, you know, a stack of board games in the uh, closet in, uh, you know, in my mom's room. And usually the yeah. game pieces were not all consistent. There was like a, a couple of them were from Monopoly. A couple of them were from Sorry. They're just a hodgepodge of different game pieces from different games. <laughs> But yeah, this one, yeah. it seems like they are all from the same set. There are also instructions. And as a bonus, there was a record. Oh, wow. Um, I guess uh, you, you, you called it a flexi disc, but they are, they play on a record player, but they are not hard. They're sort of flexible, made out of uh, very thin yep. plastic material, but you can put it onto a record player and play it. And it's actually a pretty long, it's about 10 minutes of, of uh, Gordon Soley himself going through some of the instructions for the game. But it also features a nice little uh, jingle on the introduction, and oh. as, as well as an intro by the dean himself, Gordon Soley, uh, recorded presumably about 35 years ago. So uh, before we get started and talking about the game, let's uh, play a little bit from the record that came with Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia game. championship trivia match with no time limit sanctioned by the dean of pro wrestling commentators gordon soley because of the nature of this match special rules will apply and now to explain the rules here's gordon soley Hi, wrestling fans, and welcome to Championship Wrestling Trivia, the game of pro wrestling. I'm Gordon Soley here at ringside to challenge some of the toughest wrestling fans in the business with pro wrestling trivia, from the obvious to the obscure. Today's matches should be especially exciting because the championship belt is up for grabs in what is sure to be a Pier 6 brawl. So there you have it from the Dean himself, a little wow. welcoming yeah. to the game. So, uh, as I said, this is a trivia game. In addition to the trivia questions, there are also a couple of spots similar to like the chance cards in Monopoly. So there are some called referees call and there are some called Ooh. matchmakers decision, which is pretty yeah. interesting for 1987 to, you know, yeah. uh, call it a matchmaker's decision. But uh, just for fun, yeah. let's take a look at some of these, these the specialty cards. So here's, I'm going to pull a random referee's okay. call card. And it says, you pulled his trunks, you raked his eyes, you hit him on the brake, move back one space, lose this turn and your next turn. That's a wow. good referee. 
Must be must yeah, be uh, Bill yeah. Alfonso. Yeah, <laughs> they're not playing games. Let's see another one. That was pretty cool. Let's see if there's. Let's see what I can get with yeah, another yeah. one. Whoops! The referee made a mistake. Move forward one space and roll again. So, John, who do you think was refereeing that time? Ah, uh, the referee made it. That'd probably be Gilberto Roman from okay, the WWF. I was, was going to go with Bronco <laughs> Lubitsch, but. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's take a look at the, uh, some matchmaker's decision cards. All right. Matchmaker's decision. You have won second place in a beauty contest. Collect $10. No, wait a second. That's not from this game. That's Monopoly. Let's try again. You spent an extra hour signing autographs. Move to the next 80s space. If you answer the question correctly, roll again. So you're rewarded for signing Extra autographs, apparently. Let's see what another one says. <laughs> I know a few wrestlers this applies to. You got three speeding tickets this month going to matches. You need to leave earlier to get to your match on time. You lose your turn. <laughs> um, Good. Have I ever gotten a speeding ticket on my way to a wrestling show in my days uh, in indie wrestling? Actually, yes, I did. Uh, one oh. time right. and it was a pretty it was a pretty significant one I, I will say i'm not a huge speeder but i'm not going to say i'd never speed but this time they caught me at a very high rate of speed and it was i was living in north carolina and this was in tennessee so i had to go attend the class the de, you know the defensive driving class uh oh, to yeah. take care of the ticket so um yeah i remember that but in addition to those cards, there, of course, are also cards with trivia questions. And there are four different categories. Okay. Wrestling history, general wrestling knowledge, wrestling of the 1980s. And the fourth category okay. is true or false and fill in. So, John, uh -huh. I think we need to test your knowledge. <laughs> I think oh, we need to ask some of these questions. I, to our listeners, I am pulling these cards completely at random. I am not, yeah. I did not go through them and, and try and find either softballs or really difficult ones. Um, so we're going to start. John, pick, pick a category. Do you want wrestling history, general wrestling knowledge, wrestling of the 1980s, or true or false and fill in? Can I use my lifeline? Can I use my life? Um, let's, go with uh general general wrestling knowledge so. general wrestling knowledge okay you have picked the hardest i think the hardest of the four questions on this card Fuck. which wrestler turned referee was known as the unofficial mayor of lakeland florida wrestler this is a very specific um, question and time frame uh for florida if you don't know it instantly, you probably don't know it. But wrestler okay, turned referee, known as the unofficial mayor of Lakeland, Florida. John? Yeah, I don't know. No? I don't know. Bubba? Bubba Douglas. Bubba Douglas. Okay. Bubba Douglas yes, was would, a preliminary wrestler who I think pretty much only wrestled in Florida. Uh, became, uh, uh, yeah, a, a mascot of sorts, the unofficial mayor of Lakeland, Florida. Some of the other questions on the card. In fact, the other three questions all deal with wrestling managers. The wrestling history question, who managed the psycho? Which is a tough one because the psycho was an obscure wrestler. Yeah. I don't know. I give up. I'm over two here, man. You're over two. Gary Hart. 
Gary Hart. Don't worry. Where was yeah, this was from? this was in Texas, I believe. Okay. Or maybe Florida. Actually, I, it makes sense to be Florida. I think there's a Florida lean to these questions. I would admit. Who was the psycho? Is the psycho some, like, I, this, was the psycho someone else? Off the top of my head, I can't recall, but I think it, okay. was, it wasn't anybody, or at least we don't know if it was anybody of note. Now, the okay. other two okay. questions on this card, John, you better get right. A lot of pressure. Oh, uh, trust me, Wait. these are these are softballs of all softballs. Wrestling of the 1980s. This wrestling manager is known as the Mouth of the South. Okay, Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart. All right, and now yeah. the true or false or fill-in, Sir Oliver Blank. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's going to be Humperdinck. All right, Whew. you sit, you salvage, wow. you salvage things after going zero for two. Let's uh, wow, try another really... card. Oof, man. Those, are, I, Those first two are tough, questions. though. Man. Yeah, they're tough questions. I'm, I'm going to look at these ahead of time. That's a tough one. That's an easy one. <laughs> That's a tough one, unless you have a really good memory of the PWI awards. And oh, that's boy. a weird one. All right. I'm going to start with the easiest one. <laughs> okay. What do the Haiti kid... Sunny Boy Hager and Sky Low Low have in common. Um, wonderful, wonderful uh, families. No, uh, they're 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 little people. Correct. Can I say that? Uh, yes, I, that, say that. that's the term I use in this day and age. Of course, the answer on the card says they are midget wrestlers. Uh, I try yeah, and uh, refer to them these days as little persons. Um, yeah, John, do you know? Do you recall who was? PWI's most popular wrestler in 1984. I will say 1984 was a big year for him. He won, he won his most important title uh, that he ever held that year, although he only held it for about 15 days. And he won the title and lost the title on different continents. I was that, that was not going to be my guess. Oh, uh, to Kerry Von Erich? Yes. Okay. Bing, 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 yep. bing, bing, bing. That's an Eric. excellent hint, by the way, too, because I was going to, I would have just guessed freaking Hulk Hogan. Oh, you know? yeah. Um, all right. And the true false one is one I didn't know, and it isn't about wrestling necessarily, but Teddy Roosevelt was once a wrestler himself. <laughs> true or false? I'll, I'll go true. It seems, you know. According to Gordon yeah. Soley's championship wrestling trivia game, true, he was. True, okay. So there you go. You were three for three. So overall, okay, you well. were five for seven. That's not bad. That's okay. 71%. Okay. That's a that's a C minus. Good job. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So perhaps uh, at, at uh, Cauliflower Alley or some wrestling convention, I will bring this trivia game and we will set up... Uh, uh, perhaps a cauliflower alley since it's in Vegas, and that way we can play for money. We'll have a big uh, Gordon Soley championship wrestling trivia game competition slash contest. But yeah, this is a this is a pretty neat uh, item here. So thank you as always for finding the coolest shit to buy me off of eBay. So uh, any any interesting things in your search? For this item? No, I actually uh, went straight for this. Um, I have a 
recurring setup, or search, recurring search setup on eBay for this particular item. I've been looking to get you a a a uh, one of these for for oh god, at least eight months now. And like as you mentioned, I finally found one. This one seemed to have the most complete, you know, not missing stuff. Had all the cards. Had the, you know, I think like the first thousand, uh, you know, copies or whatever you call it. First thousand editions of the game it had the little flexi record with it. So I was pretty excited to get all that stuff. And it seemed like a nice, you know, wasn't a lot of damage to it. So I pulled the trigger right away on this one as soon as this one I saw this one come up. So. Yeah, it, it's in good condition. Uh, the cards are in relatively good condition. The game pieces look a little worse for wear, and the box they're in might not have been the original box, uh, but um. the board itself is in good shape. The record, as you heard when we played uh, a minute or so of it, is in pretty good shape for it being 35 years yep. old. So, yeah, so there you go. John had been trying to buy this for me probably ever since we started Shit, John <laughs> bought me off eBay, and finally yeah. the shit hit the fan. <laughs> so, nineteen sixty-six, the spring uh, yeah. of nineteen sixty-six in Oklahoma and Louisiana. I'll tell you, having been to that part of the country in that time of the year, uh, if you have allergies, you are going to be miserable. In particular, uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. I probably had the worst allergies, uh, the worst that I've ever had. I, I always, I've had allergies all my life. I take, you know, over-the-counter medication for it, but they, the medication did not seem to have any effect on the demon pollen in Little Rock. As a matter of fact, that's what oh, wow. a woman at the Little Rock, at the Arkansas State Archives referred to it as. Uh, one day when I went there, I was sneezing <laughs> up a fit and she said, yes, we have demon pollen here. Demon pot, wow. Yeah, they also have assassins, or at least they did in the spring of 1966. <laughs> yeah, they did. Because the big feud in the early part of the year was the assassins, and this was Tom Renesto and Jody Hamilton, taking on the Kentuckians, who at this point in time were billed as Tiny Smith and Big Boy Brown. Although, of course, in later years, they are better known as Grizzly Smith and Luke Brown. But that feud ended towards the end of March when Big Boy Brown did an injury angle in various cities in the territory, uh, injuring his ankle, uh, but it was actually a cover because he was going to work for the Dusix in Nebraska. So taking his place as the tag team partner of Tiny Smith was none other than Danny Hodge. Hodge was returning to action following a car accident in January. And, I, you know, looking at it now, I wonder if they put him in this tag team feud to sort of ease him back into things. This way he theoretically mm. wouldn't have to work as much. He could stand on the apron yep. half the time. It's a nice way to sort of wean someone back into competition after mm. recovering from uh, what seems to be a pretty significant car accident. It kept him out. He worked the few nights after the car accident, but then needed to take a little over a month off. Hmm. Now, after that tag team feud runs its course, Hodge goes back into singles competition, and this time he's looking to regain the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title. He had lost the title to Lorenzo Parente the night after Hodge's car accident, and then Parente, in the interim, lost it to Joe McCarthy. 
And where this becomes interesting is that McCarthy had turned heel on Hodge in, I think, November or December of 1965. And they started a feud around the loop. But when Hodge got hurt, it's the, the feud, of course, had to hit, have, have the pause button pressed on it. Yeah. So now that Hodge is back and recovered and ready to go, they sort of resume the feud with McCarthy, but now with something new at stake, because now McCarthy is the champion and Hodge is the challenger. And it culminated on May 3rd in Little Rock when Hodge beat McCarthy to win the title. And what's very interesting is this is pretty much uh, the next to last match in McCarthy's career. He wrestled the following night in Fort Smith. And then that's pretty much it, except for a couple of matches a few years later in Kentucky on what I believe were Dale Mann shows. Uh, I think that's where McCarthy was from. But McCarthy had a long career. And this uh, title win, I believe, was the first time he held a major championship. This is the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title. He held it for a couple of months. And that was it for the career of Joe McCarthy. Hmm. Apparently, you know, uh, apparently communism, you know, could, couldn't stop McCarthy, but Danny Hodge could. <laughs> yeah, that's how that's just how strong Danny Hodge was. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, people talk about how Cody Rhodes ended racism with that promo in AEW. <laughs> Danny Hodge perhaps ended communism by taking out Joe McCarthy. Of course, the wrestler McCarthy, not related to the Senator McCarthy. Uh, but in addition to a new world junior heavyweight champion, new U.S. tag team champions were crowned as well. Now, the titles had been mentioned off and on in this territory going back years, um, but it never was really consistent. And the last time we had heard these titles in the territory was the fall of 1965, where Don and Jim Fargo, who is Jim Dalton, were billed as champions when they came here for about four weeks and left because uh, everyone got mad that they nailed the little person's boots and clothes to the ceiling while they were wrestling a match. But with the assassins in, and I guess, you know, with the Kentuckians in and tag team wrestling doing really well here, they decided to reinstate the titles and they held tournaments in a few different cities in the territory. And each city had its own self-contained version of the tournament. It mostly followed the same pattern, but some of the matches in the first round were slightly different in in each city. But the results of the tournament were the same in every city, with the Assassins coming out on top. First on May 6th in Oklahoma City, and then the following week on Monday in Tulsa, Tuesday in Little Rock, Wednesday in Springfield, and Thursday in Wichita Falls. And as we talked about when we covered the first quarter of 1966, uh, it looks like the angles um, linked up with that exact sequence. Uh, Remember, the sequence of matches and the feud between the Assassins and the Kentuckians followed that same pattern. The first Lumberjack match would would happen Friday in OKC, and then the following week would happen Tulsa, Little Rock, Springfield, and Wichita Falls. So that's a clear sign that in some cases with specific angles or matches, they're booking it sequentially as opposed to letting each city have its own narrative. But what's interesting is after that whole big tournament where the Assassins win the titles, they only stay a few more weeks. Then they leave for Arizona. 
and they do not drop the titles before leaving. So all that build up to create tag team titles and then the champions leave and they won't come back until uh, later in the year, but they will be acknowledged as the champions when they come back. So perhaps in calling them the United States Tag Team Champions, uh, you know, they they tell their fans, well, they're off defending it in other parts of the yeah. U.S. And they'll be back. There you go. So, John, what is your favorite title names? You know, most most territories had a couple of different titles. And usually some would be very regional, like the Florida title, the Georgia title, the, you know, the Western States title. And then they yeah. usually have another title with a bigger name. Uh, so the U.S. title, the national title, the Americans, the America's title, so on and so forth. Of all the title names that are have run through your brain in the territorial era, what's your favorite? I still, I still have an effect, and it's still my favorite title. Uh, and so many of my favorite wrestlers have held this title: the the, the WWF's Intercontinental Title. I just love that. You know, you you you. you you know, it's like, I think there's the, the Japan has one as well, but it's like every every territory didn't have one. You know, there was no confusing this. You know, the intercontinental title for another territory's intercontinental title, right? Like uh, the U.S. There's, title. There's, a, there's you know as many versions of that as there are territories on them. But I just love the name of the intercontinental title. It sounds so. I don't know. It sounds so. You know, it, 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 has, it has such a worldliness to it. It has I, you know, like as, as, a Robin Leach, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous vibe to it. The Intercontinental Traveler. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, I remember hearing that word at first when I was a child, and then I was like, Intercontinental? Whoa. You know? Right. <laughs> so, you know, wow, he's not just the champion of this continent, but others as well? Wow. Yeah, yeah. He must be really good. Yes, and that as 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 a child that I I was always awestruck by that name, and it always seemed like you know the the intercontinental champion was a guy that you uh, you know you would also see you know on on TV more regularly. Right. You know they, they weren't showing they weren't showing us Bob Backlund on TV or anything. Uh, you know, but you would see him on TV regularly, and uh, it would always seem like those. The intercontinental intercontinental belt for a few years there in the in the early eighties, and then again I think later on it was you know what they became known as like the workers' belt, where that right. those would be there's where we'd have a good matches, you know, and that I always like that that aspect of of it too. The work rate title. So now back to the U.S. tag team titles. As I mentioned, the tournament bracket differed slightly from town to town, but the finals in each city would be either a straight up. Uh, team versus team or a three team round robin. And these were not three way matches. These were not triangle matches. What they would do would they would start with a straight up tag team match. Uh, and then whoever lost that match would get out. And then the other team would come in and the first team to win two matches in a row would win. So that way it's the first team to beat both of the other teams consecutively. Gotcha, which is yeah. a little interesting huh. twist, but it didn't always involved two or three of the following three teams, the assassins, Danny Hodge and tiny Smith. And the third team was the great Matsuda who was hero Matsuda and his partner who came to the area for the first time 
at up to that point in time, uh, he'd been wrestling for 15 years, but this was his first time wrestling in Oklahoma, Louisiana. And that was Stan Crusher Kowalski. Mm. So Stan was born Bertram Roland Smith, born in 1926 Mm. in Minneapolis. He joined the U.S. Navy at the age of 17 by using an assumed name. Yes, yes. Think about that, lying to serve in the U.S. military when you're 17. Yeah, yeah. And apparently, here's the thing, too. There, th- that was actually legal during World War II to be 17, but it would have to be done with the consent of the parents. Okay. So I'm assuming that perhaps he did not have his parents' consent. He Seems used, uh, an assumed possible. name. Right. Yeah, and this happened a lot in World War II. I, I read a book about it years ago called uh, Children at War, Underage Americans in World War II or something. And there's something like 25,000 underage kids in, in the U.S. military during World War II that we know of. Like the youngest, I think, was something like 12 years old. And they, and they didn't find out until he got wounded and had to like find his freaking mom. Like this kid's 12. Wow. Um, so this registering, so registering, keep this in mind, uh, when we talk about some of these guys a little later, that registering for the military under an assumed name back then was not that hard to do. So. Well, there you go. And he ended up serving as a gunner's mate during World War II. Now, after the war, he went to the University of Minnesota and joined a wrestling team where he met up with Joe Pazandak or Pazandak. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. John, do you know? I think it's Pazandak. Pazandak. Okay. He was the unofficial assistant wrestling coach, but he was also a pro wrestler slash promoter in his own right. And he has two major claims to fame. John... You you knew how to pronounce his name. Do you know what the the two most noted things, and not uh, about him, are? I think he was. If I'm thinking of the correct guy, was he the inaugural beat the champ of? Uh, oh, you just re- you just character? redeemed yourself from uh, getting I the did. trivia questions wrong. Yes, uh, he was the first yeah. beat the champ television champion in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he held and it. He held I it for believe, eight months. And I believe he's also—I don't know if he was the guy, but he's one of the guys who's credited with training Vern Gagne. I believe that's amazing. I literally, I literally wrote those two things down as what I thought were the the most well-known things to wrestling fans of today. Um, I'm sure uh, his in-ring career probably Gordon. had some pretty significant highlights, but to people listening to this now, those are the two things that would stand out about Joe Pazendak's career. Trained Vern Gagne yeah. and was the first beat the champ television champion. And going back to what I asked you a little bit ago about the, your favorite name for a title, this one's on my list. Uh, <laughs> just because it's, it's, you know, I mean, isn't every title a beat the champ title? Yes, but the way they call it that just makes it sound cool. Ooh, you got to beat the yeah, champ. Yeah. Well, yeah. Every title you have to beat the champ to win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good one. And it's it's and he was very useful uh, to uh, Kowalski's career, you know, because he had ties, you know, to to the amateur wrestling community too. Uh, I think he was a former AAU champion, um, and you know, so he was that sort of link. 
from the you know the the, the, the amateurs, but he also you know had connections to I think was it with Tony Stetcher who would be the the Minnesota promoter in the V in the pre Vern Gagne days. I believe so. so. I, I, yeah. So Pazendak was sort of the the link. He was uh, yep. hanging around the University of Minnesota wrestling team, uh, but then also had connections to the pros. So Stan turns pro somewhere around 1950. And originally is using the names Sam Silver and his real name of Burt Smith. But he changed his ring name to Stan Kowalski, sometimes Crusher Kowalski. And this may have been on the advice of Jack Pfeffer. So John, was Killer Kowalski a thing in the early 50s? Oh, yeah. So, okay, so yeah, this yeah, is a yeah, Pfeffer. Yeah, yeah. This is years before... This is yeah, this is years before the the big Pfeffer knockoffs of uh, Bummy Rogers and Bruno San Martino, but even yeah, you know think, a few years before that, Pfeffer is doing sound alike names. Yeah, I think he actually billed him as Killer Kowalski on occasion in in in, in Boston. I've seen uh, some references to Stan using the name Killer. I can't verify that they're real or that something got yeah, you know. Uh, recorded yeah, wrong yeah. along the way but it's i certainly yeah. wouldn't put it past pfeffer no. to do that <laughs> no. so kowalski no. wrestled on a full-time basis for about 20 years his last known matches as a full-time wrestler were uh 1977 and for much of that career his home base was in the upper midwest where he was often billed particularly in the later years of his career as the big k and John, yeah. you curated a couple of matches uh, of his on YouTube, a 1971 match against Billy Robinson and a match that looks to be from a couple of years earlier against Larry Reed. And as always, uh, I will post links to these YouTube matches on my Twitter account. So be sure to follow me at Al Getz Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. But these two matches of Stan Kowalski, the big K. John, tell us a little bit about these two and why you selected those. The Well, there's not a lot out there to choose from, for starters. That's one of the main reasons why we got these two. Um, the first one, Billy Robinson, is a really quick clip. It's like a, a minute or two long. But it's really cool to see Billy Robinson, I thought. Um, I don't know, I'd call him young here, Billy Robinson, but he's he's probably close to 10 years into his career, but it's still a a newer face to U.S. fans at this point. Um, and Kowalski is closer to the end of his career than the beginning at this point. Robinson wins with like that backbreaker, you know, that sort of, uh, I don't know what you call it, specific kind of backbreaker, the one that the one that Roderick Strong does now. It mm -hmm. just looks like it's could actually break someone's back when it's done well, and he, he wins with that. Um, and the other, the other match, I think it's from like 68, 69, black and white, uh, TV match, more or less a, a squash match. Um, but Bob Luce is pretty funny during, <laughs> during this clip. He talks about how Big K is just back from Japan and he's on his raw fish diet. And <laughs> he talks about how ugly he thinks the Big K is. He talks about his pockmarked face. Like, how, how do you get a pretty wife? Uh, <laughs> it tells this like three or four minute story about the Big K going to like a gas station to ask for directions and the attendant won't give the Big K directions. Because he recognizes them and hates them so much. And it's like he goes on this three, four minute story. It's fantastic. Um, I don't know who Larry Reed is. Did you recognize him at all? I don't. No, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. 
who that is. Looks like he's in great shape. Great shape, though. Yeah, but I, I wasn't sure. Uh, wasn't sure who he was. I'll bet you he had no problem getting directions at the gas station, though. That's for sure. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Definitely not. But the interesting thing about Kowalski isn't necessarily his in-ring career. Like every, you know, like so many wrestlers, he traveled various territories. Like I said, he spent much of his time in the upper Midwest. Early in his career, he did have some titles. He formed a tag team with Tiny Mills that held some titles. But uh, in his later years in the AWA, he was uh, a bit lower on the cards. But what's really interesting is his life after wrestling. Because Stan wore many hats. He owned a mm-hmm. nightclub with fellow wrestler Blackjack Daniels and worked as a police officer, union negotiator, and business agent. He also made hundreds of appearances at United Way events campaigning for homeless veterans, served on the school board in Spring Lake Park, Minnesota, <laughs> ran for the Minnesota House of Representatives. He actually yep. lost the Democratic primary to the eventual winner, Connie Bernardi, I uh, believe in the primary, Kowalski got about 40% of the vote to 60% for Bernardi. And he was also the state commander of the Veterans of Foreign Wars. In fact, the VFW has an award named for Kowalski. I, yeah. yeah. That's, a, yeah that's, that's all you need to know right there, yeah. He led, uh, he, he led a busy philanthropic life after wrestling. Now, we have a few articles uh, that we found from newspapers or uh, from other sources. Again, we'll post those on Twitter discussing Kowalski's post-wrestling life, including some of the things we just mentioned. So, John, uh, aside from the things I just mentioned, uh, what did you find anything interesting in, in, in these articles or anything you want to talk about that you Those actually, out? I have something that I found pretty, pretty recently. It has to do with his, 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 uh, his actual wrestling career, because I've never heard about this uh, until you know this past week or so. Um, I long story short, I'm working on this Don Leo Jonathan project and the, the, me and these other people that were working on this project, we're talking to people from Utah and they actually, some of them actually went out to Utah to meet these people who knew Don Leo Jonathan and his father, brother Jonathan. And in 1965, there was this angle that I've never heard about before. I've never read about it on any forums or any books or any seen any articles about it really. Um, and this is when, uh, Crusher Kowalski was there in the spring of 1965. Um, and he was doing this thing where on TV and in the papers, he would, he would run down the Mormons and, and mock their religion, you know, in Utah, you know, and eventually in, in, in late May, early June, you know, Don Leo Jonathan returns to Utah to, to defend the Mormon faith against the threat of Crusher Kowalski with, uh, with uh, Jersey Joe Walcott as the special referee, which I, I thought that was really, really interesting because from what I've discovered thus far, you know, Don Leo Jonathan born, uh, billed as the Mormon giant, never really played up the fact that he, you know, was a Mormon. You wouldn't see him, you'd see him billed as like the 300 pound Mormon giant in programs, but he, he wasn't like out there in the ring reading scripture before his matches or anything. But in Utah, obviously they could work that sort of thing and into an angle where you wouldn't do that in, you know, other parts of the country necessarily. Right. And of um, course, neat that they I did think, it, that they started it when Don Leo wasn't there. Yeah. Yep. So have cause. So, so yep, yep, build, yep. you know, build up to it as opposed to having him talk bad about the Mormons and boom, here comes Don Leo. No, let it simmer. Yep. Let it, you know, let, let, uh, let it wait. Let Kowalski run through a few other baby faces first. And then Don Leo comes in to defend 
the Mormons yeah. from the threat yeah. of Kowalski. Yeah. And I think that was right. I think that sort of wrapped up and he wrapped up in Utah, I think right before he uh, came here to, uh, you know, tri-state Oklahoma. Yeah, well, yeah. So. We, you know, we talked about Arizona earlier. Arizona and Utah, uh, along with Gulf Coast, are really two uh, uh, some dead zones uh, in the uh, yeah. as far as there's huge gaps in wrestling history. But I've looked at uh, the Arizona territory in the '60s, and there's a lot of talent there at times. The Assassins uh, were there. Don Kent was there a lot. Tito Montez, uh, really a lot of wrestlers um, that you know maybe. We're going back and forth between Amarillo and uh, huh. Arizona. Chuck Carville, we talked about him a few months ago. He started in Arizona. Yep. Um, but there's really not a lot. And the same thing with Utah. I think at one point a few months ago, I think when we were talking about Dutch Savage, his earliest matches were in Utah. Huh. I think it was Dutch, but it's someone we've talked about recently because I remember us finding uh, a clipping from Utah, uh, which predated any other matches we had had for him. So there's, you know, yeah. as much as we know about Florida, Mid-Atlantic, the WWWF, and through uh, our work, uh, Leroy McGurk's territory, there are still so many other territories that we don't know hardly anything about. And Arizona and Utah are probably the two biggest ones. I'd say Australia as well. Uh, we mm -hmm. know a lot about the big names that worked Australia, what titles they held, but as far as the day-to-day, -day, what the circuit looked like, what the house show lineups looked like in the various towns, and who worked the undercards, we're really lacking in that sort of information. Of course, the hope is, with charting the territories, much as we've filled in so many blanks on Leroy's territory, perhaps over time, we or others can do the same with other territories as well. It's interesting, speaking of like dead spots in, in you know, either geographically or in, in people's career records, I was looking at, you know, Kowalski and, you know, there's, there's 1964, I thought there was only like a half dozen, you know, maybe, maybe eight, nine matches. Like, well, what is going on? Like, where was he? And then through researching, I realized that 1964, that year, he took most of that year off and he was like a full-time police officer just for 1964. Right. Yeah, the, the only there are times when the, yeah, there are times when the gaps are explained by <laughs> them having to go legit and get a real job yeah. to save up some money. Yeah. Other times it's an injury. Um, you know, the an injury can put someone on the shelf for many months, upwards of a year, in fact. So, you know, when we're looking through the career record of these guys who we thought were full time the whole way through, and you see a gap like that, yeah, you need to investigate was he working for was he working in utah uh, or in a place where we don't have records or was there another reason uh you know very few wrestlers were able to hold the full-time nine to five type job at the same time as wrestling full-time we've talked many times about red mckim but for most of his career he wasn't a full-time wrestler he was sort of scheduled in and around his time working for the tulsa fire department um, of course, there were some that owned businesses while wrestling full time, but those uh, being a, a business owner doesn't require you to be, you know, at the physical location all the time. But as far as holding a nine to five job, like there's no one who was an accountant by day and a wrestler by night. Although there probably was uh, someone, someone will reach out to me on Twitter and say, well, so-and-so <laughs> was an accountant, but then also, you know, wrestled as this. So you never know. 
But to look at the rest of the crew working in the second quarter of 1966 in Oklahoma slash Louisiana, be sure to visit our blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com. We list the whole roster, but before we do that, we list the rankings. Uh, We put together rankings based on wrestlers' average position on the cards that also take into account how many weeks they were in the territory during the quarter, and it also splits out uh, their achievements in singles matches versus in tag team matches. So what I call the list, it's basically a list of the most pushed acts during the quarters is how I would refer to it. And in the second quarter of 1966, the top seven acts, number one, were the Assassins. Number two was the team of Tiny Smith and Danny Hodge. Number three was Danny Hodge's single. Remember, we count singles matches and tag matches separately, so Hodge appears twice because he spent several weeks as a tag team, uh, in, in a tag team, and then several weeks as a single. Number four was Joe McCarthy. Number five was Irish Mike Clancy. Uh, and so... Uh, Again, he owned the pizza restaurant, so he didn't necessarily need to be there all the time, so he could still wrestle on a full-time basis. Number six was the team of Matsuda and Kowalski. And coming in at number seven is another newcomer to the territory who had turned pro less than a year earlier, and this was Tor Kamata. Yeah, the first thing I want to talk about here with Tor Kamata is his names. For starters, his real name is just glorious. His real name, McRonald Kamaka. Uh, I love the first name, McRonald. I love it so, so much. And then, uh, you know, his ring name, the ring name he would use the most of the time, Torquemada, apparently was given to him by was a gentleman, Ed Francis, I think, and was inspired by uh, Tomas de Torquemada, a Dominican friar and the the Grand Inquisitor of the Spanish Inquisition. I don't know much about Tomas de Torquemada. I think he makes an appearance in Mel Brooks's History of the World Part One. Uh, he seems like kind of a heel, super into torture. Yes, I read up on him. He absolutely was. But so, John, when you were doing your research, did you expect to go down the route of the Spanish Inquisition? No. I did not. I, I took a little detour, well, you know, and I was, I, nobody, was, I was reading. Nobody, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> I was reading once that he was so despised after his death, his remains, his bones, right, were stolen from his tomb and set on fire, incinerated in a in a manner similar. To that of his 2,000 or so of his alleged victims. With the guy's bones on fire. That's and, when and you like, know you have heat in the territory. When they light your, yeah. when they steal your bones and light them on fire. Yeah. Torquemada, though, apparently, by all accounts, a very nice man outside the ring, but a, usually a heel in the ring. He's one of those guys who'd be like, you know, built from Japan, born in Hawaii, did all the stereotypical Japanese heel stuff. I think he even worked as a, was a Mr. Moto or maybe a Dr. Moto? I, think, I believe it was like Dr. Moto. He also used his Dr. real name initially in Hawaii. Huh. But John, you uh, found you found some good footage on YouTube for tour. Oh yeah. Um, and really like, looking at this list, there are three of my top ten wrestlers of all time um, in these matches, either 
against or teaming with Kamada. So we've got Tor versus Dick Murdoch from Japan in 1980. Mm -hmm. Dick Murdoch is one of my top 10. Versus Mark Lewin from Houston in 1979. Another match from Japan in 1979 versus another wrestler on my top 10 list and probably on everybody's top three list. And that's Terry Funk. Gotta be. And then the third wrestler on my top 10 list is a tag team partner of Tours. As Tour teams up in Georgia in the early 80s with Ray Stevens to face Bob and Brad Armstrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's quite the all-star lineup of opponents for McRonald Kamaka. So, John, yeah, and- which of those of those four, which is your favorite? Oh boy. Um, my favorite, oh boy, it's tough. It, it really, you know, it, it, it again, it depends on what you what you what you want out of these matches here. Um, like the Dick Murdoch match, I love it. The doubles you get the double juice. The ref is even covered in someone's blood. I don't know whose. Um, and these guys are just—it's great. You really get a sense of Torquemada, even though he doesn't look like you know an incredible physical specimen. You know, he's kind of like a shorter, you know, heavier guy. You can still see that here he's a great athlete. Could work a technically sound match. If need be, he's one of those guys who you just watch him run the ropes and you can tell that he's good. He runs with purpose, intent, and focus without hesitation. Fantastic. Great match. The Mark Lewin match I thought is interesting because um, I'm trying to figure out if this was like a heel versus heel match or who the baby face was because Lewin is managed by Gary Hart. So by default, you know, right. definitely the heel. And Kamada seems to be playing the babyface role here, you know, and he's surprisingly, like, good at it, like, getting sympathy from the crowd. But he's also doing, like, eye rakes and shit like that. So I'm not sure what the what the, the story is here. Um, and the Terry Funk match, it's, yeah, I mean, it's going to be, it's, it's fantastic. Terry takes his bump, like, about four or five minutes in that I just love. I, it's not one that he does all the time, but I have seen it before. It's I can just try to describe it. He gets whipped into the ropes and sort of bounces up. So he's upside down at a 90 degree angle then takes a bump to the floor. It looks fantastic. Kamada comes out, slams it on a table, doesn't break it, but you can hear it. So it's almost worse. And you can see that it's buckled when they eventually show it. Um, Kamada gets bloodied by a chain after the match and they're throwing chairs around. It's a great match. Also, it's Terry Funk, 1979. It's going to be great. My favorite one, though, I think is this tag match. Um, it's just a great no-frills standard, like, late 70s, early 80s house show tag team match. No commentary. So you can hear the crowd calling the heels like punks and egg-sucking dogs and, and really worse names at times. Um, it's just like a textbook match. All these guys are such goddamn pros. Everybody's in there doing the right thing at the right time. Everything happens at the right time. And I don't know. I don't really don't know if this is the kind of match you would show to like someone who exclusively watches modern wrestling that it would sell them or whatever on old school wrestling or if they think it's boring. I don't know. But I, I love matches like this where it's not so much the stuff that happens that you notice the stuff that they they don't do. It's just the economy of what they do and having the wherewithal to know like this is the second match on the card. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Ric Flair and Tommy Richards in the main event. Mr. Wrestling 2 and the Mass Superstar in the semi-main were the second match. This is the kind of match that we should have. And they have that exact 
freaking match. It's perfect. It's like the kind of match I would love to hear like Cornette do one of those watch alongs to knowing how much he appreciates like the, the, the technical and the art of, if you will, of, of tag team wrestling. It's just like everyone is like doing the right thing at exactly the right time. They're, guys are all such pros. It's perfect. Uh, I, I love this match so much. So there you go. I asked John to recommend one of the four matches, and instead he says <laughs> you all have to see all four matches. So there you go. Uh, I, oh. You're going to have to watch all four of them, listeners. There's yeah, no other way around that. it. I, I also want you guys to watch uh, Torquemada in Joe Piscopo's New Jersey special from 1986. Oh, so. yes, where he was known as Saki. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh gosh, uh, yeah, Joe. I I don't think Joe Piscopo was as, as big a deal outside New York. Uh, both you and I grew up in New York, so you know I, Piscopo oh, yeah. probably hits us as as being funnier and more important than than many other people might think. But so tell us, what the, was this Joe Piscopo special? Was this what what was it broadcast on? I think it was on network TV. I think it was like I did. I, I forget. I forget what, but it was like a full. A full length, like almost like a variety show sort of thing, would you call it? Um, yeah, where he would like just that. do, he had, you know, he just would do, he did a musical number at one point, you know, he's doing like the Bruce Willis Return of Bruno sort of thing. He's like singing um, and he's doing all the different bits like he do with Sinatra, you know, all these different, you know, it's almost like an episode of SNL with just Joe Piscopo. <laughs> just Joe. Uh, Danny DeVito. Just Joe. Danny DeVito is a guest star, and I believe he's so it's like Danny DeVito. That's a, that's a good reason to watch it. But it's up on YouTube. It's kind of annoying because it's in like eight different parts or whatever. But if you watch from the beginning, it'll cue the next one up or whatever. But right. it's a nice little time capsule to the uh, the Northeast in the mid-1980s. <laughs> nice little time capsule to cocaine in New York in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that too. That now too. back to tour. He's probably... His most successful territory in North America was Stampede. Uh, he held the North American title three times. And as we mentioned earlier, he participated in the first ever ladder matches with Dan Crawford. Now, Kamada also wrestled frequently in Japan over the years, particularly uh, from 78 forward, wrestling for all Japan. And in 1978, in June of 1978, he defeated Giant Baba, to win the PWF heavyweight title, ending Baba's five-plus-year reign with that title. That title was formed in all Japan's first year of existence in early 1973. And Baba, it originally was called the PWF world heavyweight title. Uh, in 1974, he had what I believe was billed as a title-versus-title match with Jack Briscoe, and that went to a double count-out or a double DQ. From that point on, they took the, wor the word world out of this title name, so it was just the PWF heavyweight title. But then he held on to it for four more years before losing it to Kamada. It should be noted that Kamada won by disqualification, did not pin Baba in a singles match. But in Japan at the time, uh, titles could change hands by DQ. It should also be noted that a couple of weeks before losing this title, Baba won a, another title in All Japan. I think they had two or three singles titles. So he won another one and then lost this one. So he wasn't beltless. He just no longer had the PWF heavyweight title. Still and these were rub from Baba. Yeah, and, and these were the titles that would years later be combined into the Triple Crown 
heavyweight title of All Japan. Uh, one was the PWF. I think the other one was the All Asian. And the other one might have been the United National Championship. But you talked about Kamada being a nice guy by all accounts outside of the ring. Uh, the one and only Greg Oliver wrote an article in 2004 on Slam Wrestling titled Tor Kamada, Mean But Nice. So, John, some some examples of uh, his niceties over the years. Well, uh, he owned a, a uh, oh, I almost, I almost said massage parlor. It's not a not a massage parlor. Uh, not one of those places. Not like not like Tor's Tug and Rub or anything like that. It was uh, what do you call the uh, uh, Shiatsu? Is that how it's pronounced? Yes. Shiatsu. That is Shiatsu. That's one of those places. Those little dogs, those little barky dogs, right? No, those are shih tzu. My <laughs> mistake. My, no shiatsu. Shiatsu. And not, yeah, not a massage. I almost said massage parlor, but I don't want to get them people the wrong idea. That would not be a, I guess, well, I guess he's a really nice guy. One of those. Well, um, unless it was toward doing, you know, giving the, uh, giving the endings. Yeah. <laughs> and so I had, that's why he had, that's why he had such, such formidable, uh, you know, judo chops. Um, Judo, judo chops, baby. Um, the restaurant owner too, I think. Tours teriyaki had a couple of those. Um, yeah, I mean, it was not not quite as not quite as fruitful and the or or as much of a philanthropist as Stan Kowalski, but still kept very very uh, busy after wrestling. Um, what else? What else with him? What else with Kamada? What else did he do? Um, well, one of the interesting things I learned was uh, before his wrestling career, while he was stationed in Turkey in 1959, uh, he served, we talked about Kowalski enlisting under an uh, assumed name. Well, Tor, yep, yep, yep. Uh, Tor served in the Air Force. He was born in 1937. Yeah. He served in the Air Force. So this probably would have been the mid 1950s. Uh, and while stationed in Turkey in 1959, Tor got the opportunity to train with what uh, is credited as some of the greatest amateur wrestlers in the world. Now, John, I'll admit the amateur wrestling scene uh, in the late 50s, particularly internationally, is not something I'm too familiar with. But I did a little no, research to see what oh. the scene was like in Turkey in the late 50s. And oh. in 1959, Turkey came in second place in the World Freestyle Wrestling Championships just three points behind the Soviet wow. Union. So wow. that, that gives you an idea of how uh, good some of their wrestlers were. And in the 1959 World Freestyle Wrestling Championships, which were held in Tehran, Iran, Turkish wrestlers won gold medals in two weight classes, and altogether they medaled in six out of eight overall weight classes. Wow. So clearly they had a very solid crew of wrestlers and Tor Kamada who you mentioned, despite his appearance and, and you know, not, not necessarily being lean, uh, was very skilled. And it's probably it's likely that he learned some of that skill while in Turkey in 1959. Yeah, he could go. Yeah, it's interesting, too. Like he talks about, you know, breaking in when he gets back to, uh, you know, to, to, to Hawaii. And he's got sort of like, you know, King Curtis Iakea and Mark Lewin sort of mentoring him and, and, you know, showing him the ropes or whatever, so to speak. Um, and also Nick Bockwinkle was sort of a, of, of a mentor to him early on in his career. So it's like you really get with, with those, with the, the Iakea and Lewin coupled with Bockwinkle, like you that's get such a great, 
you get everything under under that like collective learning tree. You know, you can you know how to work as the, you know, the crazy bleeding guy, and also how to you know to 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 work a match. You know, as a as a different kind of heel, the Bachwinkle, the Bachwinkle way, you know? So and and really, Lewin, Lewin was incredibly versatile over, over the course of his career, he had many different stages as yeah. far as what his ring work was like. Um, you know, yeah. often baby face, often a heel, often scientific, often, you know, brawling. He, he really had a little bit of everything. So to learn and, from a pure brawler and a pure technician and someone who's very adept at both, man, yeah, that's a great all. pedigree. Yeah, and we talked about a little bit about the stampede uh, you run with Crawfit, and that's probably the the thing he's most known for there. But like I, the reading a little bit about too about his feud with uh, Abdullah up there too, in uh, with the Rougeaus also, and in <laughs> addition to the to, to the stew. And I was thinking, I'm reading something like why they never tried that program in the U.S. Like I was, I, I was like this could totally work. In Georgia, like an Abdullah versus Torquemada feud, and I was like looking, like looking for the match results, looking new things, and I found one match from the Omni that they wrestled in 1981, Kamada versus Abdullah, um, and that's it. So I don't know, maybe it just didn't click with the fans, well, but or those guys weren't able to bring it like they were in 81, like they did in the early 70s. I don't know. What do you think? If you're only looking in, at newspaper sources online. There are there's a not a lot of Georgia newspapers on newspapers.com. Oh, okay. So it's very possible it happened in other cities as well. I actually do have a fair amount of clippings from Georgia that aren't easily findable uh, that I got when I went to the University of Georgia and searched their newspaper oh, archives. Nice. So perhaps I could dig into it. But I I think I've seen it more than once. I don't think I've seen it a lot, but I believe I've seen it gotcha. in uh, around the mid-70s in Georgia. I wonder if also maybe at some point Houston might have run it huh? or East Texas. Yeah, uh, Tor was in East Texas for a while. I don't know that Abdullah was a regular in East Texas, but that's why I think Houston might have been the place because I could see Paul Bosch mm. um, you know, booking talent from East Texas and supplementing it with Abdullah. Uh, and running Abdullah vs. Tour. So we'll look into that, and uh, I'll see if I can have an update on next month's podcast, see if we can find more Abdullah versus Tour matches in the United States. But there's another really interesting article that you found about uh, Tour's family's farm. And this article was in the June 17th, 1993 edition of the Honolulu Advertiser. Basically, uh... years earlier, the U.S. government leased land from the Kamaka family, uh, beginning in 1942 for military training exercises. And it was their responsibility after the lease ended, they were supposed to go in and clear out, um, you know, everything uh, so that it could uh, be used again as a farm. And unfortunately, for due to the terrain, and I guess due to how much they set up for training, the government was never able to fulfill their promise of clearing the land of potentially dangerous, unexploded military materials, including ammunition, shells, and explosives. And they ended up having to condemn the land. So, John, uh, if you want to go into a little more detail, because it, it has nothing to do with anything, but these are the things you never think about happen in the world and and how it impacts a family's <laughs> you know land that they had had for generations yeah 
And it was like it was 40 of them, like 40 of their family members were involved in this. I think it was 39, maybe, but like a lot, you know, um, and it was a thing. They 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 I think they ended up ultimately paying out. I don't know if they paid out or they offered them. Was it seven hundred fifty thousand dollars or something? They had offered them that uh, and it was declined. Yeah. And they you know, it's when you read about it, they did take a. They had like their explosives ordnance division disposal people come in, um, found twenty four thousand pounds of like scrap stuff that was left there, um, you know. And as late as like late nineteen eighty three, they're walking through um, just a, a a a part of the land found was a four hundred and eighty uh, like small rockets. 480 small rockets. Um, another sweep in a year later, 16,000 pounds of scrap. Uh, you know, and they, I think they, they, they estimated it would cost, uh, like, I think legally, or they have to do two feet to clear the land would cost something like almost $6 million. And then I think ideally they wanted to go, four feet by machine and one foot manually. And that would cost like something like seven and a half million dollars. So it's like they're just trying to pay them out for, you know. Right. And uh, what the article says <laughs> as part of condemning it, they then take it to court and determine a fair market value to pay. Like, like you said, yeah. the offer of $750,000 a couple of years earlier was rejected, but now when they officially condemn it, they have to pay uh, whatever is uh, judged to be a reasonable dollar amount for the land. But it's not just, you know, it's not just the money. This had been, you know, uh, the families for years. And because they yeah. were gracious enough to, uh, again, they leased it to the government. So I assume they were getting paid for its use. But, you know, to give that land to the government so they could train their soldiers for World War II is a certainly a very yeah. noble uh, thing to do it for. And then in many ways, they, they ended up getting screwed on the deal. Yeah. And like you said, it, was, it wasn't like it was in their family for 15 years. It was in their family for 120 freaking years, too. So it's like there's obviously, you know, yeah. uh, a lot of just aside from the physical value of the land, you know, there's this is our, our you know, this was there. Yeah. Our families for. Our yeah, family's so land. It's an so. interesting little story. Yeah, uh, and I'm glad you found it. Uh, we'll we'll post that on Twitter uh, so you can check it out as well. Or if you subscribe to newspapers.com, you can look for it in the June 17th, 1993 edition of the Honolulu Advertiser. Yep. So there are the rankings. Like I said, the, the top seven most pushed acts, the Assassins, Hodge and Tiny, Hodge, McCarthy, Clancy, the team of Matsuda and Kowalski, and number seven was McRonald Kamaka, better known in wrestling circles as Tor Kamata. We also list the entire roster for the territory and put them in a what I call a depth chart based on their spot rating. Of course, the spot rating is the statistic we invented at charting the territories to measure a wrestler's average position or spot on the cards. And it's a number between zero and one, rounded to two decimal points. So the main eventers in the territory who had an average weekly spot rating between 0.80 and 1.00 consisted of every wrestler in those top seven rankings, plus one other man, a man for whom very little is known about. 
but he had a unique name and an even more unique backstory. So for the last few weeks, both John and I have been diving in and trying to see if we could figure out just who the fuck is Battleship Johnson. So before we start, I will say this. Uh, If you go online, there's a wrestler in 1980 in Southern California who was billed as Battleship Johnson. This was Dan Johnson, who primarily wrestled as Bullwhip Johnson. However, Dan was born in 1954, so he couldn't have been the same Battleship Johnson who was wrestling in 1966. Now, Dan's father, Ron Johnson, was active in the 1960s, mostly using the name Bull Johnson, but this definitely wasn't him. We have pictures of Bull Johnson and Battleship Johnson, and they absolutely positively are not the same person. And on top of that, Bull Johnson is confirmed to be wrestling in Canada at the same time that Battleship Johnson is wrestling here. So this Battleship Johnson's career seems to consist of this several-month run in Oklahoma and Louisiana for Lira McGurk, a very brief run in Amarillo in the fall of 1966, and then a couple of weeks in early 1967 wrestling for Goulas in Tennessee. And those are the only references to a wrestler by the name of Battleship Johnson, aside from a different wrestler who wrestled in Southern California in 1980. It's always possible that he used another ring name and perhaps a name that's more familiar to fans. But I will say this, he has a very unique look. He had Mm -hmm. uh, numerous tattoos, including one on his chest, which is very rare for the mid-1960s. So my gut feeling says if he was someone else, if he had wrestled under another name of note, someone would have made the connection by now. So it seems like this was a guy that just showed up wrestled for a little while, and then got out of Dodge. So the first things we learn about him come from a couple of articles that offer some background into the character. These are uh, wrestling articles previewing upcoming events. So we don't know if the uh, the hype given to Battleship Johnson, if his accolades are real or not, but we're going to read what we have. First, from the June 8th, 1966 Shreveport, Louisiana Journal. Karate chopping battleship to wrestle at auditorium. A burly newcomer will make his debut in the wrestling profession next Monday night at Municipal Auditorium with the with no knowledge of wrestling rules or technique, but with a brick busting fist and a lot of confidence. So here in 1966, he is referred to as a 27-year-old rookie, Battleship yep. Bob Johnson. So let's keep that in mind. He's given an age, and he's given the first name of Bob. Um, here, he's a heel. In fact, his first week or two in the territory, he's positioned as a heel. But then they flip him to the babyface side with, uh, to the best of my knowledge, with no explanation, no angle. He just, I think they take him out of the cities he worked in as a heel for a few weeks, bring him to the other towns as a babyface, and then eventually work him back into the other cities as a babyface as well. But uh, as oh. I said, he's got many tattoos on his, um, not only his shoulder and his upper arm, but also on his left forearm as well yep. uh, and his chest. And he is billed as a karate master, but not just any type of karate. 
For the past four years before making his debut, according to this newspaper article, he has been in Japan, and he claims to have received his knowledge of karate from a group of Buddhist monks in a monastery where he stayed. The six foot five, two hundred seventy pounder says that it is not really karate he uses, but a special type of defense that is known only by a select group of Japanese. Yet they were willing to share it with this random American that shows up, apparently. <laughs> He says he acquired the nickname Battleship when he cleaned up a barroom brawl on the docks in Houston some time ago. He said when he finished fighting in the bar, a shore patrolman entered and said it looked like a battleship had come through there. Not only is he able to protect himself from attackers with his know-how, but he is also able to break bricks with his bare hands and quarter cement blocks, which lay flat on the ground. And he can also achieve these tasks with his feet. Um, He actually would do brick-breaking demonstrations at house shows before his match. And in this article, they talk about he does an exhibition um, that was taped the day before and would air on the local uh, TV station, KTBS Channel 3, shown Saturday afternoon. So that's another hint about TV, uh, that they were taping at least some things locally in Shreveport and airing it there. Because as we mentioned earlier, they seem to have a sort of regular pattern uh, happening in the northern part of the territory with Oklahoma, Tulsa, Little Rock, Springfield, and uh, Wichita Falls, Texas. This is a hint that the Louisiana towns, which consisted of Shreveport and Monroe— may have had their own TV as well. Huh. But the other unique thing about Battleship Johnson is that according to these press clippings, due to all the brick-breaking and barroom brawls he was involved in, one of his hands was twice the size of the other from build-up with calluses from all the things he does with his fist. And there's another article... A couple of, a few days later in the Wichita Falls Times out of Wichita Falls, Texas. And here, Battleship Johnson, I believe, is given a different first name. I'm actually looking through the article. Yes, here they say his name is Joe, Joe Battleship Johnson. So right off the bat, to really find out anything about this person, if indeed it's his real name. Well, we now have two potential real names, Bob Johnson and Joe Johnson. And I assure you, while it's very easy to search for Larry Zabisco and Ron McCulloch or Nick Bockwinkle or the Briscoes, it is really hard to do a wide search for Joe Johnson or Bob Johnson to see if we can find any other information about him. So, We don't know a whole lot, but we've got one more hint, one more bit of information. And this comes from a post on Wrestling Classics made in 2002 by a man who teamed with Battleship Johnson regularly during this run in the McGurk Territory, and that is Jack Briscoe. Yeah. Uh, Jack says, I remember Battleship real well. Great guy. He was from Louisville, Texas, and was a commercial artist. He had an amazing drawing ability. He was friends with one of the wrestlers. I can't remember for sure which one, but I think it was Akbar. 
Anyway, Battleship was the big guy. We were short on wrestlers one night, and someone asked him if he had ever wrestled before. He said, not professionally, but he would like to try. So he put him in the ring, and he wasn't bad. And he was really getting over. He wrestled for about four months, but didn't like the business. One night, he was driving from somewhere to Oklahoma City. He saw a sign that said, Amarillo, this exit, and took it. We never saw him again. <laughs> now, remember... Well, like how uh, Jack yeah, Briscoe's career ended. Yeah, yeah so uh, well, yeah, so that's what Jack recalled uh, 35 or so years later about Battleship. Uh, a couple of things. Him taking the exit that says Amarillo uh, possibly has at least some truth in it, because as we mentioned, yeah. after leaving this territory, he's advertised for some shows in Amarillo. And I can't quite confirm if he actually made them or not, but he's only advertised for about a week and then his name never shows up again. So it's possible he didn't like Oklahoma City, went to Amarillo, saw that there was wrestling and said, maybe I'll maybe I'll give it another try. And again, didn't like it. As far as how he got in the business, Briscoe thought he was friends with one of the wrestlers, but wasn't sure who, thought it might have been Akbar. It's possible it was Akbar. And I think age-wise, that lines up. If if Battleship was indeed 27, he was a contemporary of Akbar. The one thing to note is that Akbar had not yet wrestled for Leroy regularly. He had had two or three appearances mm. in 1963 and then was off doing other things. So he still very well could have been friends with Akbar. Again, whether all this karate stuff in Japan was true or not, he was a big guy. He could break bricks. He was a local strong man in Texas. And so was Jim Weba, uh, Skander Akbar. Yeah. So it's very possible they knew one another. Um, so it may have been him. It may have been Akbar. It may have been someone else. I looked at all the wrestlers in the crew uh, in this quarter that, you know, uh, perhaps one of them could have been friends with uh, Battleship, but none of the wrestlers in the territory at this time had roots in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is where Louisville, Texas was. It's a suburb of Dallas. So I, I might not have been any of the wrestlers in the territory, and it may very well have been Akbar, and perhaps he showed up on his own without Akbar and uh, you know was just hanging around. Yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, that's basically, that's, yeah, that's, and that, that's sort of the information I was, I, I was, was going off of unsuccessfully to try to find more about this guy. Like I said, we had the article list them as being, you know, at the time 27 years old. So we're looking at a guy who was born, you know, roughly around 1939. If that age is, age is accurate. I mean, the guy looks, the guy looks, looks way seven in the pics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He looks older than both of us. Yeah. Um, but you know, who knows? But when you do these searches on Ancestry.com, you can change, you know, the, the tolerance level of the search to be exact or plus minus whatever amount of years you like. I like to start with a smaller range and then expand that uh, seems less overwhelming to deal with uh, less entries and in, in, in right off the bat. Um, like I said, we see him referred to as Bob Johnson sometimes, Joseph, Joe Johnson and the others. So this is sort of like the triple whammy here. The last name Johnson, you know, the, the, the second most popular surname in America right. um, and the first name of Bob slash Robert or Joe Joseph. So it's another one of the reasons that's tough. And, you know, Jack Briscoe talking about uh, the Louisville, Texas 
And again, when, when you're searching on Ancestry.com, you could have the, the location search, the same thing. You could have it be exact or expand to include results, results you know, from further beyond, if you like. Again, I like to start, start exact and slowly expand nice and easy. makes it a lot less overwhelming. Also, Briscoe mentioned that Johnson was a commercial artist. So when I do my like secret undercover uh, background check stuff, sometimes you can see former places of employment. So, you know, I was looking for, you know, that sort of job in my results. Again, didn't, didn't, no hits there. Um, then what I was really hoping to find, find a hit was with the military stuff. Um, yeah, because we don't, that's it never great... says he was in the military, but looking at him being in Japan for four years, looking at the tattoos he has, it's yeah. a possibility uh, that he served in the military. And of course, that might you know, narrow things down if we narrow it only to military records. Again, there's probably still a lot of Bob Johnsons and Joe Johnsons, but perhaps it gets us to a more manageable number. But John, you you uh, you yeah. you said it didn't. Yeah, no, I uh, yeah. Uh, was it that there were no hits, or was it that there were too many hits? Oh, too many hits. Okay. Like I'm assu- okay. I'm assuming that the I'm, I was, and I'm also I'm going off the 1939 birth year. Give right. or take five or ten years in either direction. So, assuming that birth year is correct, 1939, you could you could forget about him serving in World War II. Um, I guess he was born in 1929. He could have theoretically registered under assumed name, you know. But still, right. you're grasping at straws because it's an illegal, not his real name, assumed name. Um, but the World War II stuff is great for that because nearly everyone had a draft card with all you know their vital information on it. Um, but we don't have that for, for Battleship Johnson. Um, aside from the, well, the World War II draft cards and stuff, the Marines have uh, what they refer to as muster rolls, M-U-S-T-E-R, which go from all the way back to 1798 to 1958, which is great for what we need here. And, and, and great for Marines, but Battleship Johnson, I think, was in the Navy. Uh, so the Navy has what they call U.S. Navy support books. Um, and the, the Marine muster roll that I mentioned, they're basically just like a list of the guy's name, his rank, um, and there's some internal numbers and stuff. No no birth date, no hometown, no nothing like that, like on a draft card. And But the Navy support books are almost more like high school or college yearbooks uh, for various like Coast Guard academies or naval battalions or whatever you have there. Um, so what's useful here is you'll occasionally have photos of, you know, wildly varying quality, clarity and, and size. Um, so, of course, I found, you know, quite a few uh, Bob and Joe Johnsons, um, none that looked remotely like, you know, our, our, our boy Battleship. When you say quite a look, few, you know, are we talking tens, dozens, hundreds, thousands? Oh, uh, it, it depends on how it really depends on how how, you know, how much you narrow it down. OK, um, so a guy's named Bob Johnson in I might have the window open here Let's see if I can get back to uh, Bob Johnson. Here we go, Bob Johnson. Yeah, so just or I've got a yeah, Bob Johnson uh, narrowed birth date. Within five years of 39, I've got 
you know, almost 400 hits Okay. for, for Bob Johnson. Um, yeah. So nothing there, uh, that I found as of yet. I'm, I still have, I still have these windows open. I still got these tabs bookmarked and open. So yeah. So, still, still look. so to our listeners, we would love to tell you who the fuck Battleship Johnson is, but we don't know. Please keep in mind that no one else knows. In fact, the only thing we know is is what little information Jack Briscoe gave us uh, from that message post, that yeah. message board post in 2002. So no one has it. And and just like the Wrestling History Mysteries last year where I tried to figure out who Mr. Zabo was, this takes a lot of research and dedication. And it's really not easy uh, because even if we could you know get a lead on it we still have to go through the proper vetting and verification of all that so oh. we may never solve this mystery and and really the answer is he was a guy that tried wrestling briefly and found it wasn't for him and left and yeah. uh that that's really all we'll get it'd be cool if we had a real name to find out what else he did in life to find out what when yeah. when briscoe said he was a commercial artist what exactly that yeah, entailed so uh we'd love to and and i we're still gonna look but we don't know yeah. and if we don't know nobody knows because again in the collective uh his historical record of wrestling no one has uncovered any information about this man and we've probably gotten a little bit more than anyone else has so it yeah, may remain unsolved wrestling history mystery, yeah. but uh, John and I will continue to try and chip away at it. Yeah, where where I am now with it is like I, I'm on the the there's the military uh, transport service arrival and departure service right. records and, and for again, the individual branch. We don't even know if he was in the military. That might be that yeah. might not you know even be. Yeah worth it so that's the other challenge yeah. is that's 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 the one thing if he was in the military that's our best bet of finding him but if yeah. he was in the military that's wasted resource so to our listeners yeah. if anyone knows anything and has you know actually originally sourced information by all means send it our way until that time it's an unsolved wrestling history mystery now, there are other wrestlers in the territory that we do know a lot about. In fact, we've talked about in the past on the podcast. Uh, some of the other wrestlers in the territory on the heel side, Chuck Carbo, Lorenzo Parente, Don Kent, George Harris, and on the babyface side, Ramon Torres, Bruce Kirk, Bobby Christie, and the aforementioned Jack Briscoe. A few newcomers show up in June. Battleship Johnson is one of them, but also returning is Argentina Zuma. We also have Roberto Pico and a new tag team, the Medics. And this version of the Medics was Tony Gonzalez and somebody else. Because once again, the historical <laughs> record of wrestling seems to have it wrong. Uh, they claim it was Donald Lorty, who was a regular partner of Gonzalez in the, as the Medics for many years. But it appears that Lorty is wrestling in Gulf Coast under the name of Pierre Deglaine at the same time as the Medics are here. And in this territory, when the medics are unmasked toward the end of their run, they're ID'd as Tony Gonzalez and somebody named Dan Ellis. And much like Battleship Johnson, there is no information on a wrestler using the ring name of Dan Ellis aside from when he's unmasked in this territory in 1966. So the medics here are Tony Gonzalez and somebody else. But you can see the rankings and the spot ratings 
as well as a list of the biggest feuds during the quarter on our blog. And when we list the feuds, we also have a town-by-town, match-by-match recap of Danny Hodge's feud with Joe McCarthy, plus a calendar of all known house shows in the territory with full advertised lineups for all of them. And in this quarter, we have records for 112 house shows. But you can find all that at www.chartingtheterritories.com. John, a couple of months ago, we talked about Bob Backlund getting his first push in Amarillo in 1974. Yeah. As the story goes, he had been wrestling for Leroy McGurk, but was sort of stuck in the prelims. And Terry Funk, while in for a show, uh, told Bob he was welcome to give him a call if he ever wanted to come to Amarillo. And Bob took him up on that offer not long thereafter. So we know he definitely got a push in Amarillo. And we know he won the Western States heavyweight title twice. But when we look at the spot rating for Bob Backlund in Amarillo in 1974, we see his push may not have been as big as you might think. And that's the subject of the latest episode of my Stats 101 podcast, which came out earlier this month. It's an interesting look at titles and title holders and whether or not champions are always placed in main events. So, John, you know, we talked, both you and I grew up in the Northeast, uh, so we grew up on the WWWF. By the time I started watching, it was the WWF. But their primary singles title was absolutely always the advertised main event of shows uh, that occurred on, whether it was Backland or Bruno or Hogan. It was always the most important match on the card. The Intercontinental title, of course, was sometimes the main event of the B show, and sometimes it was the second or third match from the top on an A show underneath the World Heavyweight title match. And the same goes for the tag team titles. So using the spot rating, we can actually calculate spot ratings for titles. Every time a title defense occurred, what was the spot rating for all those matches? But aside from the WWWF, many of the territories, particularly the ones in the South, the title holders weren't always the number one guy in the territory. Yep. And in particular, in Amarillo in 1974, the holder of the Western States heavyweight title was not near the top guy in the territory. So this Stats 101 podcast sort of discusses that and throws out some of these spot ratings for titles and separates it by title holder because there are times... When Terry Funk or Cyclone Negro is the Western States heavyweight champion and their title matches are placed higher on the cards than when someone like Bob Backlund or Lord Alfred Hayes or Pac Song holds the title. So it's a pretty interesting listen if you want to, you know, dig in deep about titles and title holders and where on the card title matches sometimes occur. And we're actually going to talk more about Backlund's run in Amarillo next month. On another Stats 101 podcast, the Stats 101 podcast comes out the second Thursdays of every month, and sometimes it's Stats 101, and sometimes it's Wrestling History Mysteries, but we're going to take a more in-depth look at Backlund's spot rating on a week-by-week basis while he's in Amarillo in 1974, and also use our FLW statistic, which stands for Feud Length in Weeks, and approximates the length of a feud in the territory to see who Backlund's most frequent opponents were during that run in 1974. 
And if you, if you subscribe to the Charting the Territories podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts, you'll automatically be notified of new episodes, not only of this podcast, but also of Stats 101 and the other podcasts, Wrestling History Mysteries. And next month on this podcast, John, we're going to look at the second quarter of 1974. Now, in the first quarter, Ken Mantell feuded with Skandor Akbar, and as that feud finishes up, both men found new dance partners, and we'll talk about their two new feuds. Plus, one of the most hated men in wrestling turns babyface. Okay. And when I say he was hated, John, I mean he was hated by fans, by most of the other wrestlers, by a young referee with the initials of JR, and to this day by most wrestling historians and researchers. I think I know. Wow. I think I yeah, have an idea. But he, but, but he turned babyface in 1974, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Plus, a rookie by the name of Frank comes to town, who would go on to become sort of a legend in the world of wrestling. And in addition to the McGurk territory, we're also going to look at a territory that we have yet to look at. It's the latest in a series of uncharted territories. And this one will require us to bring our passports. <gasps> yes. So we're going to take a look at a territory we've never covered before. Uh, but this month, we will finish up, as we always do, with This Month I Learned, where both John and I name one new thing we learned this month. So, John, what did you learn this month? Well, so in keeping with the, the vaguely military theme of, of this month's show... Uh, what I learned this month comes from uh, Brian Solomon's fantastic new biography of the, the Sheik, Blood and Fire. Uh, and Brian devotes almost an entire chapter of this book uh, to not only Ed Farhat's military service in World War II, but his entire family's involvement. Like his four or five older brothers were all in the service. Uh, the women did you know defense work, building helicopters and whatnot. Uh, their family was in the local paper pretty regularly being presented as this great example of an immigrant family, a family of first generation Americans proudly supporting their new adopted home country. Um, and earlier we talked about Stan Kowalski joining the service under an assumed name, uh, perhaps because he's underage and have consent. And this was a very common thing during World War II. Ed Farhat actually tried to enlist when he was still underage, but he was rejected because he he failed the physical exam. Uh, now, Brian says there's not, not really details about why he specifically failed the physical exam, but he suspects that may have just discovered that he was underage and that sort of subterfuge would just fall under that category. Uh, but my favorite takeaway from that chapter has to do with after Private First Class Edward G. Farhat was honorably discharged from the U.S. Army. So uh, this month I learned that the future Sheik not only received a bronze battle star, but also received a medal for good conduct, which is just wonderful. And as, as Brian Solomon points out in the book, probably the last time the Sheik was recognized for any such behavior. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't know. So, uh, yeah. John, did you pre-order that book on Amazon? I did, and I got hosed, man. Uh, okay, I got hosed. I still haven't gotten it, but everybody, I went to the 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 book release party. Um, took the train up to uh, Fairfield, Connecticut. There, uh, it's a nice little Italian restaurant, and uh, 
you know, I, I, the book was supposed to come out that day, you know? So I had it, I had, I ordered, pre-ordered it in freaking September right. that morning, me, you, and pretty much everybody else in the world, uh, got a note from Amazon saying delay, delay on your thing. Um, and you know, so I, I went and I bought one, you know, he had a few there that he was selling. So I was like, well, fuck it. I want to read this book, man. So I just bought, bought one there. And, uh, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on the, I'm on the back order list on Amazon. They apparently yeah, grossly underestimated. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I guess it's a good problem to have, right? Uh, Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, but, uh, mm. yeah, I've, I've only, I haven't made it that far in, but the book is fantastic so far. Obviously, if you're listening to the show, you've probably already pre-ordered it and are probably upset you don't have it yet, but, uh, get the Kindle in the meantime or something. Cause it's, it's really good thus far. I'm about a third of the way into it. And it's great. Okay. I, I was going to get mad if you had pre-ordered it and you got yours, but I hadn't gotten mine, but it turns out <laughs> we're both, no. we're both back ordered. So I'm, I'm not mad at you. Yeah, yeah. I'm just mad at Amazon. Okay, good. All right. Now, as far as for what I learned, um, there are some territories or, or time periods in certain territories that are blind spots for me. And one of those is the late seventies and early eighties in the WWWF, basically the backland era. Um, of course I started watching right around the time Hogan, uh, came in and won the title in late 83. I know a little bit more about the Bruno era than I do the backland era. So it's sort of a blind spot for me. So the thing I learned this month is from that time period. Um, and John, I learned it from you. What? Yeah. Towards the the end of March. I learned it from watching you. Yes, that's exactly where I was, what I was thinking. Uh, (laughs) Towards the end of March, someone on Twitter asked, was there a wrestling angle that legit traumatized you ever, uh, ever before you knew better. And John, you responded with a link to a, uh, a match from the WWWF in 1981 that is referred to as the Rick Bolton incident. <laughs> yep. So the Rick, basically the Rick Bolton incident, there was a wrestler uh, by the name of Rick Bolton who had what uh, is called a trick shoulder and was able yeah. to dislocate it at will. And yeah. uh, while they're building up George the Animal Steel as a monster heel, his finisher is uh, the flying hammerlock. So someone has the brilliant idea of bringing in Rick Bolton. And uh, so they do this enhancement match, and, and Steel spends the first couple of minutes attacking that shoulder and just doing a number on it. Finally lifts him up, puts him in the flying hammerlock, and Rick Bolton dislocates his shoulder. And for the next couple of minutes, his shoulder is just sort of hanging at a very weird uh, angle, askew of his body, gonna, as George Steele just oh goes God. to town on it. Oh, I might puke. Oh. Yeah. Oh, it, it's, it's amazing to watch it. And it's amazing that they aired it. Um, but this is great. Yeah. And according to Bob Backlund's autobiography, uh, they ended up drawing 22,000 fans to the garden for uh, Backlund and Steele in July of 1981. Yeah. So, oh, did, so did you did you see this when it first aired? Uh, I don't know if I saw it when I first said, but I believe they replayed it at some point. Um, I don't know so if I saw it. It wasn't live. something you discovered years later on the YouTube, uh, but it was something you saw no. as a young child watching yeah. TV. Okay. Yeah. I, like, I'm sure they would do that occasionally. They'd show, um, you know, on either championship wrestling or all star wrestling, they would just randomly replay uh, right. 
Um, and and not, not even an angle, just a random match. Like they would show a random like Andre the Giant match from the Philadelphia Arena, a handicap match from 1975 in 1981. Just if Andre was coming in the next few weeks, and maybe maybe it was a, a case of like Steel being brought back in, you know, a year later, maybe. Or so, I don't know, but I, I definitely remember seeing it on TV and just being like, I don't know what's happening. I'm gonna be sick. But D- did you did it <sighs> register as? different from the other stuff you were watching. So, I mean, you were young, so I, I you weren't smart, mm-hmm. but did no. it, did you think it was like an unplanned incident or like, did it register as just different than the rest or you just, did it help further your belief that, well, clearly this is real because now look at what I'm seeing. It, yeah. The, the latter. It, I, mm-hmm. I, 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 at that point, you know, 1981, 82, um, you know, eight, 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 eight years old or whatever. So it's still every few weeks, once a month or so, there was something, you'd see something like that, not necessarily that grotesque necessarily, but there'd be something on TV uh, that you would see, um, even in the WWF, where they weren't, there wasn't an angle heavy, heavy territory. You get one, two angles on TV a year, if that. Um, but there'd be something, you know, every, every, you know, every couple of weeks, once a month, every six weeks or whatever, that you're like, oh, wow, that's, that's like, I know there's a lot of this seems a little hokey, but whatever the fuck just happened, like that was, that's, there's, you know, and then that's what kept me watching, you know? But I had, so I had never, I had never heard of this until you, uh, posted about it on Twitter. So I went and saw the match and yeah, it's, it's, it's wild so we'll post a link to it on twitter i know a few years ago Cornette, i think did a watch along or or talked about it so this might not be new to a lot of our listeners but if it is uh we'll post a link to the match and you can see uh rick bolton's trick shoulder during a match with george the animal steel so yeah so that's it for this month we learned something new we uh played some gordon Soley championship wrestling trivia with john boucher we talked about yep. Uh, a couple of veterans in Stan Kowalski and Tor Kamada, and we tried to solve the mystery of Battleship Johnson. We will continue to try and solve it, oh, yeah. but for now, it is unsolved. If you want to follow along, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you can follow me at Al Gets Wrestling. And if you want to follow my baseball stadium exploits, uh, this year I am going to visit all 30 major league baseball stadiums and a few minor league ones as well. Uh, at the time we're recording this, I have been to uh, the Braves stadium just down the road from me. And I've been to Tropicana field in Tampa, uh, later the week later after we record this, but before the podcast airs, I'll have made the first of my California trips where I'll be going to a Dodgers game an angels game, and I'll be shooting up to Oakland to see an Oakland athletics game. But if you want to follow my exploits there, where I go to stadiums and try and eat the most ridiculous food item in each, in each ballpark, oh, yeah. you can follow a separate Twitter account I've made at Al gets baseball. So we have Al gets wrestling and we have Al gets baseball. So you can follow both of those accounts if you'd like. And John, if our listeners haven't yet followed you, A, shame on them, and B, how can they yeah. rectify yeah. their mistake? Uh, yeah, follow me at Twitter, uh, at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. I was looking at my followers today, 
You know, it's like I feel like I, I feel like my my follower. I mean, I'm sure everyone feels like they should have more followers, but I really feel like I should have more, like I should at least be over like two thousand at this point, considering the quality yeah. of my posts. I think I'm hovering yeah, just really under be- the two thousand mark myself as well. So I think both of us. Well, maybe we should have a contest to see who can get to two thousand first. Uh, no, I think, I think, I think. That would be a good idea. So as of right now, I have 1,940 followers and John has, oops, that's the wrong John. Oh, no. John (laughs) Anik has a lot more followers. John (laughs) Anik, the UFC commentator. He has 303,000 followers. John, you have 1868. Okay. So. I think we need to make a little contest. I think we need to see which of the two of us can get to 2000 first. Okay. So let's, and then uh, what's what's yeah. the what's the what's, what's to, to the victor goes uh, a punch a what? punch in the a punch in the stomach. God damn it! <laughs> well, you probably win. So it's good to go down. Well, there you go. So <sighs> I don't know. We'll think of, we'll think of something. Uh, okay. We'll figure out something. But yes, yeah, some some sort of uh, nominal prize will go to whichever the two of us gets to 2000 followers. First, no bots, no AEW troll account bots. We want nothing but the genuine artifact. Um, John, you also mentioned earlier, and uh, you had told me about this, but this is the first time you've mentioned it publicly, that you have been uh, working on a Don Leo Jonathan project. Uh, Do you want to, are you able to share a little bit more about that at this time? A little bit, yeah. It's basically, um, it's... uh, the guy spearheading it is a the head of the religious studies department of UC Santa Barbara, and he's been interested in Don Leo Jonathan for years and years and years. Uh, a mutual friend of mine and his reached out to me years ago asking me to if I had any Don Leo Jonathan stuff I could scan and share. So of course I scanned everything, sent it over project lied dormant for a while but he in the interim had interviewed don leo and in the last you know six months or so we've we've been to uh vancouver to interview his his widow and his son and his uh, former business partner and we were in uh montreal interviewing you know uh pat laprade bertrandy bear uh did a swung by butcher Vachon's place interviewed him uh, they went down to Toronto, did Greg Oliver, and just in the past few weeks, they're in Utah doing the, the Utah Loop. So it's a multi-tiered project. Will probably be a a, a, a written uh, project initially, and then hopefully the the the, the, the hope is to eventually do like a, a full documentary um, about him and his and his dad uh, and you know, how that all ties into the wrestling and, and, and the rise of, of professional wrestling in America, how that ties into the rise of Mormonism in America. It's very, it'll be very interesting. And I think, I think, uh, I think our listeners will like it, frankly. All right. Well, Krill, that's very cool. So uh, yes. listeners keep an ear out or an eye out. I guess it's written. So you keep an eye out for it. But uh, I guess as John gets more information as, uh, about when this project may come to fruition, uh, I hope he'll share it with us on this podcast uh, before anywhere else. We, we want the exclusive. We want you will. We'll get just, it. just like how the WWE will like feed something to Sports <laughs> Illustrated. And then they'll and then uh, yeah. as you heard on Sports Illustrated, they have the exclusive scoop <laughs> that we hand fed to them. 
So uh, I want a similar exclusive on the oh, Don't Leave I already have project. the I already have the press release drafted for when it's ready. All right. Well, excellent. So we'll, we'll read it on on the on this podcast. Now our blog at chartingtheterritories.com is updated regularly and new podcasts are released on the second and fourth Thursdays of each month. To be the first to know when new podcast episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. Uh, we will see you guys next month. John, thank you as always. And uh, we'll talk again in May. See you in May, guys.